So today we're going to talk about credibility assessments in employment investigations. Chertoff88 asked a question on the investigations episode I did a couple years ago. So we're going to dig into that topic more. And here we are on the HR Hub podcast with me, Andrea Adams. Keep listening to learn more about this topic and all kinds of things related to HR. You can also find me on YouTube. Today, my guest is again, Bob Stenhouse. Bob is a retired undercover police officer who has taken his investigative skill learned there and brought it to employment scenarios. He has a very unique uh, personal story, which I'm going to ask him to talk about a little bit to set us up for this. Hi, Bob. How are you? I'm doing well, Andrea. How are you? I am great. So, okay, Bob, I love this question. Tell us about your background. Well, it all began when I was six years old. No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, later. Andrea, um, I was a, uh, I'm a former RCMP uh, undercover officer. Um, my my career was wild and crazy uh, in an undercover capacity, infiltrating uh, drug dealers and organized crime figures and murderers, homicide suspects. Um, spent most of my career working undercover or investigating uh, in a plainclothes capacity, some very highly serious uh, types of investigations. I had a little bit of a wobble in my career and which caused me to transition into the area of workplace investigations. I was a human rights investigator for a couple of years when I left the RCMP. Um, and then I uh, had the pleasure of um, kind of envisioning, growing, and developing a corporate investigations unit within the largest employer in Alberta, Alberta Health Services, and the largest health authority in Canada. Um, I did that for about 10 years, and then I launched my own firm back in 2018, Veritas Solutions, and we are conducting about 150 investigations a year within our firm. Uh, I bet you have some great stories. Another Another episode. Yeah, yeah, okay. That's probably not that relevant to HR, but still, it just does make me think about uh, the training I did with you where you showed up in character. Right. Yes, I played my characters in my training, and we have some fun role-playing, and I showed my pictures in my undercover days, and uh, people can Google me, and my my uh, undercover pictures are on, on the web and on my website and stuff like that. Okay, that's fun. All right, but we're going to talk about credibility, credibility assessments. So what is a credibility assessment in the context of an HR investigation? Well, if, we, if we're if we talking about investigations that are what I call person-on-person allegations of misconduct, so the person-on-person allegation is going to be harassment, bullying, sexual harassment, assault, sexual assault, behavior that one person does to another. And um, oftentimes these result in what we've historically heard to be called as a he said, she said, scenario. Okay. Now I have heard people refer to a, he said, she said within the context of saying, well, we don't know. She says this happened. He says it didn't happen. Who are we to believe? And then basically washing their hands of doing the right thing by conducting an investigation. And so when, when, I launched, and when I was working within Alberta Health Services and developing our uh, our process, our methodology. So this is a methodology. This is a, a form of analysis. Okay. And I um, am of the belief that even in the most 
challenging of he said, she said investigations that we can come to a finding based on the balance of probabilities. And that comes down to credibility. So if you are a very, very credible person and you say this happened to you, and the person that's alleged to have engaged in misconduct says, no, it didn't, I have to make a decision who I believe. And so by conducting a systematic credibility assessment, I'm able to systematically put in and implement an analysis that will help me come to a finding on the balance of probabilities and that it will also withstand legal scrutiny. So it really is a methodology of analysis to determine whose version of events is more plausible than the other. Can you describe your, the methodology you should be following? Absolutely. So what it did was as we developed, um, we have 12 um, factors that we take into consideration with a credibility assessment that we do for all of our investigations. We put it right in our report. What I did in developing this methodology is I went to case law and I researched the issue of credibility and from a case law perspective, from other experts out there, and just really kind of did a deep dive on credibility. And when uh, there's, there's a judge out in uh, Vancouver, as an example, that uses 30 factors to assess credibility. We have some arbitrators that will use five or six. We have some people that will use more. I took the most common uh, factors that judges across Canada, arbitrators and judges across Canada utilize to assess credibility, and I took the, the most common 12. Okay. We put them into a systematic um, evaluation into our report, and we, we identify each and every one of them that these particular factors, um, this is what my opinion is on this factor. And we're able to put it into our reports. We're able to come to a finding that we did not necessarily find someone to be credible or we found someone to be very credible. Can you throw out some of those factors, some of the 12? Yeah, motive to falsify. So if, if, as an example, people say, well, false allegations happen, bad faith allegations happen, uh, vexatious allegations happen. Yes, they do. We've investigated them. We've actually investigated and identified this was a bad faith investigation. However, they don't happen often. So that's the one criteria. And from there, it's like, is there any other motive? If someone says there's like, if someone comes in and says, you know, Bob, I don't want this person to lose their job. I'm not out for my pound of flesh. I just want this behavior to stop. Yeah. That's pretty pretty um, compelling evidence in terms of motivation, right? Now, if someone basically, you know, is is out to destroy someone's career and they feel they want vengeance, and those are things that will will flesh out in an investigation to say, I don't know that the motive is all that sincere here. So that's only one aspect of it. Yeah. Flip side, if a respondent of an allegation could lose their job, that's a very strong motivator to deny that something happened. That's only one of the one of the many factors under. Sometimes you hear in in uh, investigations, well, that person they do this all the time. That's just how they are. They're you know they're bad. Basically, there's some version of a bad person. Uh, and and trying to what's the word I want to say cast dispersions on the person's credibility that's a big word but 
how do you like what's your take on that well it's interesting because we will in a in a um a well-conducted interview i may ask a question like this tell me about your relationship with jim and listening carefully sometimes people's bad motive might come out mm-hmm. right Sometimes people don't have a filter or they're not really thought through. And I got to, I got to say that one of the factors that we, um, we will sometimes come across in the workplace is outright hatred. And hatred is a strong motivator to skew someone's perspective, uh, to skew someone's behavior. If I'm, if I'm looking at your behavior through my disdain or hatred for you, I'm probably not going to see anything good. My bias, right? We're looking for biases. We're looking for motive. We're looking for other factors. You know, do I have a a nuanced view of this? Am I willing to accept my responsibility or is it all blaming somebody else? These are all things that we're looking for in a credibility assessment. But I wanted to identify, uh, Andrea, for for your listeners, is that there's two aspects of credibility, and this is this is this is the legal uh, legal decisions right across the law across Canada. The first aspect is honesty. Is someone telling you the truth as they understand it to be? Now that's an important caveat to that, as they understand it to be. Secondly. Is their expression of the truth, this called, this comes down to the second factor, is reliability. And the courts have identified that the reliability of someone's testimony comes down to a number of different factors, including cognitive, psychological, developmental, time, um, memory. Uh, you know, so are they reliable in their perspective of what took place? So... The implications there is that someone can be honest with you, but mistaken. Yes. They can be honest with you, but their perspective is not reliable. So we're not saying that people are now on the flip side. Some people are just dishonest and we look at that. So we may evaluate a, a credibility assessment from a place of honesty or reliability based on the 12 factors that we have. I just hear a lot. They look like they're lying. They, I don't know, body language, tone of voice, whatever it is. Uh, do you rely on those things to assess credibility? No. Years ago, I took a course when I was in you know, my former policing years back in the 1980s, took courses on interviewing techniques and reading body language. And, yeah, yeah. And um, body language and reading of body language has been pretty well debunked. Um, you know, I, I remember taking a course, well, if someone looks to the left when you ask them a question, they're lying, oh, yeah. look at right. I mean, that's it's been debunked. And um, really what it is about proper interviewing skills, listening very carefully, and then probing the answer for the veracity of that, right? So it's about actually listening to the answers, probing the answers, looking at it from an evidence-based perspective, assessing credibility from the answers versus assessing credibility from the way a person is presenting. Now, except we do have one factor called um, appropriateness of affect. That's one of our factors that we use. And what that means is that is someone's, from a reasonable person test, if someone's behavior or their affect or their demeanor, does it seem to be appropriate for the subject matter? 
Mm. As an example, from a trauma-informed lens, when we're asking someone to relay a traumatic event, we will oftentimes see, visibly see, someone crying. We might see someone get angry. We might see someone start to shut down. And unless they're master manipulators and actors, that is an actual thing that's going on. So we might look at that and say, well, within that context, a reasonable person would assess that as being an appropriate affect to the subject matter. Okay. So it's not reading body language per se. It's actually observing someone's emotion and how that emotion may express itself. It a little bit leads into another question. You know, what about, you know, you, you, you get a respondent or the person whom the allegation is against and they're going to get angry and they're like, I can't believe this is happening to me on and on. This is outrageous and this person is terrible and uh, and they'll, they'll go on for quite a long time about how outrageous this is. Right. What's your take? Offended in their outrage. I had one. Yes, uh, this exactly. was in a, uh, this was in a context of a uh, a pastor in a church, and he was alleged to have engaged in uh, sexual misconduct throughout his whole pastoring career, yeah. of um, frankly preying on vulnerable women and then engaging in extramarital affairs with them, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember asking him about this allegation of having an affair. And he just looked at me with a sneer and he said, I am not going to dignify that question with an answer. <laughs> and he was just self-righteously indignant. So what I did after that, I said, you know, it's really interesting. Um, I've asked tough questions of people my whole life. I've been doing investigations almost 40 years. And I said, it's been my experience that people that respond to a question like that, it's actually a sign of their their complicity or their guilt. Um, what do you think about that? <laughs> uh, and, uh, and you can imagine how the conversation went after that. Yeah, I can imagine how the conversation went out, down after that. Okay, uh, so is that a red flag? And if that's a red flag, confirm or die? And uh, are there yeah. other red flags? Um, yeah, Dr. Jennifer Freud from the uh, University of, of uh, Oregon in Portland, she coined this this terminology called DARVO. DARVO. And she did it within the context of her study on sexual assault on campuses in universities. And within that study, she identified that the common uh, response for a person engaged in misconduct, and in this case, serious misconduct, sexual assault, um, have followed this consistent pattern. Deny the accusation, yes. attack the credibility of the person bringing it forward, and reverse victim offender, make themselves the victim of this outrageous, false, frivolous, vexatious allegation. Mm -hmm. So now they become the victim. It's a witch hunt, they might bellow. Yeah. You're going to believe them. These women are only looking for money. They might put that seed of doubt into someone's credibility. Yeah. You're going to believe her. She was in the psych ward. Yes. Said that pastor that I was confronting. Um, You're going to believe her. She's got mental health issues, you know. So 
planting the seeds of doubt in terms of credibility and then positioning themselves as the victim of a false allegation. That alone, though, is not going to, like, let's just say I got accused of sexual assault. Let's just say um, I'm going to deny. I'm going to be like, because I haven't, I'm going to be outraged and I don't know if I'd play the victim. I'd play horrified. I'd play scared as I'll get out if that came at me. But I can see myself like being defensive about that, like because it just didn't happen. Right. How do you tell the difference? Yeah. Oftentimes I find the difference is in the the level of aggression towards the other person. So as an example, if someone is falsely accused, they might say, um, I don't know why she's saying this about me. I want you to know it did not happen. I don't know why she's saying this about me. Um, I will do everything I can for you to find the evidence to make sure that you come to the appropriate finding. What can I get you? Well, do you have any text messages from her? Yes, absolutely. I've got I've got years of text messages where it shows that we banter back and forth, whatever. I'm going to send them to you. What I find, Andrea, is that the person that wants you to find the truth in an investigation is generally the person that will give you, go over and above to get you the evidence that you need. The person that does not want you to find the truth will certainly use Darbo, but they're not going to be all that cooperative in providing you with text message uh, strings or emails or those types of things. What are the most common credibility issues you see? Darvo? Um, so Darvo is usually the tactic used by someone that is being dishonest, okay? But we have this other this other aspect of reliability, and sometimes what we also see is people that are just not self-aware. Um, their perceptions are skewed. And so with that skewed perception, they may interpret, let me give you an example, someone that's experienced trauma may interpret an interaction through that lens of unhealed trauma. So if someone speaks loudly, they may interpret it as being aggressive and bullying, where this is actually how just people express. So there's there's two aspects. Darvo is oftentimes used by the person that they know they've committed uh, misconduct in the workplace. They know they've sexually harassed or whatever. They know they have. And now they're going to kind of um, try to make sure that they're not held accountable. That's usually in that honesty perspective. The reliability perspective is oftentimes a little bit more nuanced in terms of whether someone's perception of what happened is reliable. Can you conclude an investigation without ever doing a person-on-person investigation without ever doing a reliability or a credibility assessment? I would say that, I mean, if you have um, a lot of what's called corroborating evidence, uh, so you've got the text messages, you've got the emails, you got people sending photographs of their genitals, which does happen in the workplace, uh, as you know. Um, and so <laughs> you, if you've got all of that corroborating evidence, we, we do them anyway, we'll do a credibility assessment for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think that you can still successfully conclude when you have a lot of overwhelming evidence, yeah. the less corroborating evidence you have the more that we should be looking at the credibility assessment to come to a finding. I'm going to share my pet peeve. Hey. My pet peeve 
is for people that either don't have the experience or the training um, to think it's okay to come to a, well, we don't know. He said, she said. Yes. And it's not just my pet peeve. There's a judge that identified that if an investigator um, is accepting two different versions of events equally, it is a denial of justice. Right. We cannot accept two versions of events equally. And if, if you say something happened between us and I say it didn't, someone's not telling the truth. Yeah. And an investigator needs to make that determination who's telling the truth. Because if we don't do that, it's a denial of justice. So I've seen many investigations where investigators or maybe it's an HR person where an investigation is only one of 15 hats that they wear is off the side of their desk. They have to get it done. He said, she said, yeah, we don't know. Um, and increasingly, because it's de denial of justice, that is going to place the organization at risk because the person that has experienced the injustice may escalate it up to the next level. That's why we see lawsuits. That's why we see uh, human rights complaints. That's why we see the headlines. Almost last question. Uh, where can, like, what if you get two people who are not being who are not telling the truth. Both the respondent and the complainant are telling the truth. They're leaving out any unflattering details. Exactly. Yeah. And so you'll have that where they'll they'll tell the truth on certain aspects, but anything that paints paints them in a a, a not great light. Yeah. If they omit, they may minimize, they may deflect, they may deny. Um, we'll have that oftentimes. You have two people that don't have a lot of credibility. However, we are oftentimes still able to come to a finding on the actual allegation itself. So we might say, notwithstanding that there was some problems with the credibility of the of the um, complainant, yeah. that based on the balance of probabilities, which is our standard of proof in a workplace investigation, that we believe that this is more likely to happen than not. Do you ever do uh, investigations in the states? Uh, yeah, we we actually because we have some um, uh, U.S. clients that are international. And so we've had several investigations where, uh, again, virtually, we don't, um, <laughs> that's a whole other topic one day, Andrew, is, is like how to do good virtual investigations. But because we do our investigations virtually, um, we've done several down in the States for some of our international companies. Right. Do they have the same standard, uh, balance of probabilities in the workplace? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, so I'm part of what's called the uh, Association of Workplace Investigators. It's actually uh, an organization in the U.S., um, we have a Canadian branch called the Canadian Association of Workplace Investigators, and our standards, um, our methodology are very, very similar across the border. Every state, the U.S., every province is going to have similar legislation which drives policy. Okay. That similarity in the legislation is what we test the evidence against. And so there's a lot more commonality with our U.S. counterparts in employment, labor law, and, and investigations. We have a lot of commonality in our methodology. Okay. All right. Good to know. That's helpful. Okay. Last question. Uh, how can someone learn to do a good credibility assessment? This is economy. <laughs> on Jack Bob. <laughs> no. Um, so we provide, so as you know, Andrea, um, yeah. many of our courses are provided through our partnerships with the Charter Professional Human Resources uh, in Saskatchewan, Alberta, and BC. Yeah. Um, I address credibility assessments on my three-day workplace investigations training. Um, yeah. I also have a full day uh, of credibility assessment training um, that I offer for those that are doing this uh, this type of work 
probably more full-time where they start to become much more educated on how to do a credibility assessment, what it might look like. We actually do them, we practice. And so that's a full day uh, course that I offer generally through my partnerships with CPHR, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and BC. Um, I do them on uh, on occasion, we'll we'll provide our training to organizations that are larger and they have, let's say they have 20 people they want to train and then they'll bring me in to do some training on that as well. Well, thanks, Bob. And thanks, Chertoff, for the question. I am going to dwell on that difference between honesty and reliability that someone may be telling the truth, even if it isn't, it's there, it, it's more their truth than the actual truth. But we've reached the end of this episode. Thanks for listening out there. We'll catch you next time when I talk with another insightful guest.